The Money Cafe is proudly brought to you by InvestSmart's professionally managed accounts. Diversified portfolios of ETFs with a capped fee. T's and C's apply. Find out more at investsmart.com.au. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and columnist for The New Daily. And I'm James Thompson, senior Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are The, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. Um, now, before we get on to the Fed, uh, I just did you see that um, Delaware courts knocked off yes. Elon Musk's- Have you read the judgment? Five, I haven't read, but the uh, $55 billion- Options award. That's US, so it's about eighty billion Australian. I know. <laughs> oh, the judgment. It's worth. It's worth finding. Um, Kathleen McCormick is the name of the judge, and you know Australian judgments are very dry and legalistic. US judgments are written like thrillers. It's so good. It is just so good. Yeah. And basically, it says you know Musk controls everything. Uh, instead of negotiating this deal with Musk, the board basically said, well, what do you want, Elon? <laughs> and rolled over. Um, and the- yeah, so this is two, two, 2018. 2018, yeah. And the option award uh, said uh, put a, um, a threshold on the market cap of Tesla yeah. that had to be reached of $650 billion, which it duly Saluted, reached. yes. And he got the money. Yeah. Or got the options, at least. Yeah. And Richard Tornetto, a Tesla shareholder, sued. Yes. Now, he didn't sue necessarily because he doesn't like the options package. What he sued about was the idea that when there was a shareholder vote, the directors said, we are independent, we have approved this, so should you. And what the judge found was, no, the directors weren't independent because they were either Elon's mates or in the case of Robin Denholm, the Australian chairman of Tesla, uh, they'd earned so much money from their Tesla shares that it was difficult for them to be independent. Yeah. So, it's, but it's just really well done. And, of course, Elon came out straight away and said, never incorporate in Delaware. And Delaware <laughs> Which is, is where everyone corporates. 60% of people are incorporated in Delaware because it's usually so easy to do this stuff. I know. So... It's great. But he's, he's going to appeal, isn't he? I think they'll appeal, yeah. It's interesting, though, because Musk's come out in recent weeks and said, I want more control of Tesla or I'll, or I'll do all our AI developments in a separate company. And so now the board's got this interesting decision to make. Do they give him even more control having had this But he's, he's only got about 20%, 20%, right? He's got 12% equity and then his options take him up to 20%. Yeah. yeah. So he wants twenty five, but he's running six companies. <laughs> yeah, there's that little, there's that little thing, and actually that's sprinkled through the judgment. You know, Robin Denholm's trying to say, oh, maybe we should have an agreement that you does, devote a certain amount of time to to Tesla, and this is before he bought. But that's Twitter. why they, that's why they've coughed up fifty five billion dollars to him because they want him to focus a bit yeah. more on Tesla. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an amazing thing. Like this guy's clearly brilliant, and extraordinarily erratic. Imagine trying to be his chairman. Yeah. But and then he's making you as 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 she testified, she's given him life-changing amounts of wealth. So how do you how do you bite the hand that feeds you? I don't know. It's interesting. <laughs> 
So did you did you watch or listen to the Jerome Powell Fed Reserve Chairman's I did. press conference? I did, and this it was morning? it was um, started at six thirty in the morning, um, and and as usually happens, Jerome starts speaking, and he's he might sound a bit bearish or, or hawkish in the statement, and he gets a bit dovish in as he's talking to everyone. He doesn't want to, you know. He wants to be a nice he guy. He wants to be a nice guy and he wants everyone to love him. And then finally, at, in about 35 minutes in, someone says, so, March rate cut, what do you reckon? And he says, nah. He says, I don't think that's how uh, the Fed is leaning. That is not our base case. Right. And the markets have run really hard on this idea that not only will there be a cut in March, but there'll be five more cuts. So now you've got a bit of a decision to make. But, but the, the, the statement clearly shifted from a tightening bias oh, totally. to an easing bias, totally. right? There's no, there's no doubt that's, a, that's happened. And he said in the press conference, rates have peaked. We will need to bring them down. And he even said there's a risk we might leave them too high too long. Right. So they're coming down. The question is when. That's right. And so he's knocked off a March one. He's knocked pretty off much. a March one pretty much, yeah. 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 There's a great thing by this guy, Benoit Anne from MFS in, in the US, said sort of there's three stages of emotion – Everyone's past the fear stage. No one fears the Fed anymore. They're not going to lift rates. We're sort of in the indifferent stage now. Well, Jerome can talk tough, but we're not listening. And now we're in this anticipation stage. When Give us our cuts. <laughs> um, but I don't know when they're going to come. It's, um, I mean, yeah, he was very positive about the economy. He said this is a great setup. And, I mean, he said, oh, I'm not declaring a soft landing yet. But they've done it. There's, this is a soft landing. Sure, I mean, of course it is. It's 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 well, everyone's calling remarkable. it as uh, in, uh, correctly calling it uh, immaculate disinflation, yeah. which is what it is. Yeah, it's dis- disinflation without a recession. Without a res- well, not just without a recession, and the GDP growth of three point three percent. It's fantastic. Yeah, but the, jobs I mean, markets tight. And, and don't forget, this time last year, the consensus was for a recession in the US. Absolutely. I mean, everyone was predicting a recession in the US, yeah. and, and it wasn't until about June or July everyone started going, oh, maybe there won't be a recession. Uh, and now everyone says there won't be a recession, and it's clear there won't be. Yep. And it's also clear that uh, rates have peaked and inflation's coming down. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So it's it's really fantastic in a way. It's um, it's great. I mean, the question you we've still got is, have equities run got ahead of themselves? Has the share market got ahead of itself? So the S and P was down one point six percent overnight. So there's a bit of a pause, but. In the context of a 19% rally since the end of November, it's a little... Yeah, but the thing about the... It seems to me the thing about the US share market is that it's partly to do with the Fed, right, obviously, but the question is how much of it is to do with AI? Yeah. You know, how much of it is anticipating, correctly anticipating massive profits from artificial intelligence? Well, we saw Microsoft's result yesterday and those profits appear to be coming, at least for Microsoft. Yeah. So... I mean... And, and the thing is that nobody knows how much money they're going to make from no. artificial intelligence. No. Uh, it's probably going to be a fair bit, though. Yes, I think that's right. <laughs> I mean, the thing, yeah. and the thing about artificial intelligence is that it's a product. Yeah. It's yeah. a product designed to replace human beings. Yeah. And so that's what they're all doing. All these, you know, NVIDIA, Microsoft, Apple, Google, you know, they're all developing products to replace human beings. Yeah, that's and, exactly right. Uh, and they're going to sell. And I, and I actually read something last week and wrote about it, uh, that the, the most likely thing they're going to make the most money from are um, 
uh, household robots. Yeah, right. Yep. In the end, yep. because and and I, uh, and I thought that was really interesting because uh, you might you probably are too young for this. The Jetsons, you remember the yeah, Jetsons? Oh, vaguely, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, so the, so the Jetsons had flying cars and everything, which they we're did. not going to see. But the thing, but the robots that they had in the Jetsons yes. were were um, servants, a butler and a maid, household servants, yeah. right? And they correctly anticipated that that's what everyone would want. Yes, and so. I reckon these things are going to be in um, Harvey Norman. <laughs> they are. Well, Elon Musk, I think, was last week. They they had his robot, the Tesla's robot, called Optimus something, uh, and it folded a shirt. Yeah. So there you go. We're no, no, there. there's, there's actually about seven companies developing domestic servant robots. Yeah, right. Um, and and there's one that's got it. It's just about on the market, where you teach it what to do. Okay. Okay. You, you sort of you do the tasks with the robot a few times, like a dozen or so times. Yep. And then you say, "Go for it," and off it goes. Right. Jeez, the robots sound more pliable than my children. Well, the good thing about a robot is that you don't have to pay it. <laughs> and right? Doesn't talk back. No, it doesn't talk back. <laughs> but you don't pay it, right? So what we're what we're entering is a new. Um, this is getting a bit deep, but we, we are entering a new period of slavery. Oof. Right, so slavery was abolished in the mid nineteenth century. Right, had been going for thousands of years. Right, so yes. slavery for most of human civilization's existence, we've had slavery. Right. Yep. Uh, and I reckon that what's going to happen is that the two hundred years without slavery, when it, where everyone had to be paid, yes, will be seen as an aberration. Oh, a blip. A blip. So we've had thousands of years of slavery. Yep. Uh, 200 years, no slavery, and very soon, slavery again. (laughs) With with robots. No, no, with robots. We're not going to pay them. They'll they'll cost us a fair bit. As slaves used to be quite expensive to buy, we'll have to go and buy our um, our, uh, our, our machine slaves. (laughs) Somehow I can't see this being used in the marketing. <laughs> you know, I don't think we'll see billboards on the side of the road. Slavery, it's back and better than ever. <laughs> I don't think that's coming, Alan, but uh, I, no. I, I see your point. And, I mean, you, you sort of think through that, like that that's a great example of the potential productivity benefits. The time spent not doing that is time used for something more product- productive, exactly. hopefully. That's right. Yeah. I mean, the, the robots they're developing uh, cook do the cooking. Right. They cook. They clean. Yeah. They make the bed. I mean, they sim- make the bed. Simple set, si- simple idea. But imagine <laughs> that in aged care. Well, that's right. Imagine that. But that's the thing. So, so that's why these uh, all the robots really are both Harvey Norman kind of um, appliances, yeah. essentially. Yeah. And, but also uh, labour replacing devices for companies. Yeah. Whether they're aged care companies or or hospitals or manufacturing. Yeah, manufacturing. Well, obviously, most manufacturing is now done by robots. True, that's true. Already, yeah. yeah I mean, the logistics case. is a better, and I guess that a lot of that's automated. But you automate the rest of it. Well, you mean uh, self-driving cars and trucks? Oh, yeah, warehouse work and that sort of stuff. There's a apparently lot of China's. Apparently, China is a long way down the part, track on self-driving cars now. Mm. They're they're leading. They're now leading everybody in self-driving cars. China, apparently. Yeah, I don't know. We've got a long way away from talking about Australian inflation here, uh, Alan. Although the uh, 
Governor of the Reserve Bank continually calls for productivity to lift, so maybe this is an answer. Exactly. But um, so the CPI on uh, Wednesday for the December quarter, yep. which was lower than expected, lower than the RBA predicted. Yeah. The RBA had predicted 4.5%, it was 4.1%. Um, so everyone's going, oh, well, that's it for rate hikes. Yes. Obviously the case. Yep. Uh, now a question of, like the US, it's now a question of when rates are cut in Australia. Yeah. Yep. And I think the the expectation is that rates will be cut later in Australia than in the US, right? Yeah, September seems to be the sort of broad consensus. But, I mean, there's some people who are around June and others more November, some still fe- next February. So let's see. But, again, things are going in the right direction. We, we You can't ignore it. Oh. I mean, there still might be some stickiness, particularly in services inflation around the world. But... Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm naturally inclined to be bearish, but you can't deny this has really worked out well. Yeah. It's been a very – the path to this looks – soft landing looked really narrow and somehow it looks like we've found it. It's interesting. I mean, uh, Phil Lowe used to always say that uh, we're treading a narrow path. Yes, he did. Towards soft landing and it looks like they've – Got the narrow, they've treaded on the narrow path. Yeah. They have. P- poor old Phil also used to sort of make the point, there's a lot to be optimistic about. And I think he's, he was right. Sure. There is a bit to be optimistic about. I and mean, we've still got lots of stuff to figure out. You know, it'd be good to have some productivity improvements and some tax reform and all that sort of gear. But it's um, it's the, 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 the setup the position with the platform that you do that stuff from is better than we thought. I interviewed Victor Schwetz oh, of Macquarie really? in uh, New York yesterday. Oh, awesome. Had one about, of my favourites. Had about three quarters of an hour with him. Great. And one of the points he made was that even all the geopolitical risks should be discounted a bit because things are not more risky or yep. more dangerous now than they were in the past. Yeah. You know, like it, it, it always feels like it's terrible and worse now than ever has been before, but he was... It was going through what it was like in the 70s and 80s and crikey, you think about yeah, you know, yeah. all the terrorism that, and wars that were going on then. Yeah. I don't want to uh, preempt your piece on, on Victor, but he's got a, a, his sort of idea that there's no recession but there's also no recovery is really interesting. Whether we get back to that sort of pre-COVID grind where low growth, pretty low rates, not much happening... That, that's yeah. the interesting thing for me. No, it's interesting because, uh, yeah, I mean, Victor does say that, say that if you don't get a slump, you don't get a recovery. Yeah. Um, uh, but I don't know. I mean, he's kind of a bit negative about this. Oh, you know, we're not going to get the big recovery. But, yeah, who cares, you know? Better not to better not to have the slump. Yeah, true. You know, really. True, yeah. But, yeah, he is saying that, that basically, uh, you know, and also that, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a world of, um, you know, Volatility, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, interesting. Interesting. Just finally, um, uh, Evergrande liquidation. I mean, look, yeah. they, they first defaulted in September 2021. Yeah. Um, so it's been a two year grind towards death. Well, and, and <laughs> you know, the, is, Evergrande died after a long illness. Yeah, that's right. I mean, <laughs> is this death? It's a Hong Kong liquidation. All the assets are in China. It's not clear that. The, the sort of liquidator is going to be able liquidator from Hong Kong is going to be able to go into the regions of China, the back blocks, and 
No, they're not going to get control the all these assets. No, but it, that, that kind of means that the, the equity and most of the bonds get wiped out. Oh, right? for sure. Everyone, yeah. everyone gets wiped out. Yeah, yeah. This is not a happy ending, but I don't think it's totally unexpected. As you say, Evergrande has probably been dead for the best part of two years. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I, had, a, I had a correspondent email me this week and say he spent 18 of the last 20 weeks in China and reckons the place is booming. Did he? And, and the... What, That's interesting. What we're talking about is uh, just not what the picture is on the ground. Right. So That's very interesting. Yeah. And, and he, his point was that th- there's a general acceptance that, yeah, okay, the property sector's a bit stuffed, but the government's not going to let us, you know, not going to let it collapse or anything No, it's like just that. because a lot of people are talking about the Japanification of China. Yeah. Um, including yours truly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and... And that's kind of what it looks like. It does. And, and that refers to the Japan crash in 1990, followed by decades of low growth and deflation and all that stuff, uh, which a lot of people think that that's what China's in for, partly because of demographics. Yeah. Population shrinking. Yep. Um, you know, also obviously the property market's co- uh, collapsed. Yeah. We're, we're, I mean, whether this short-term optimism is short-term, I, I, I mean, it's hard to get around those property deflation demographics issues. But look, I mean, uh, you know, you, you do speak to people who's lived in China, and they and they just say the outside world's view so often it doesn't marry up with what's happening on the ground. So anyway, it won't stop us pontificating. <laughs> yes. Okay. Before we go to questions, let's have a quick word from our sponsor. InvestSmart's professionally managed accounts is a digital wealth platform with diversified investment portfolios overseen by Australia's most trusted finance experts, including Paul Clitheroe, Effie Zahos, and the Money Cafe's Alan Kohler. Join thousands of Australians growing their wealth through InvestSmart's managed portfolios. Check out investsmart.com.au for more information. Jake says, according to my source, there are 30 new IPO listings on the ASX. There were 30 new IPO listings on the ASX in 2023. These have lost a fifth of their issue value on average since, with over 75% of listings from the mining resource sector. Why does the Australian market lack any exciting or innovative companies that retail investors can get excited about? Is Is this the case of Australia being complacent, lucky country that can only provide value through banks and mining? I love his... According to my source, don't reveal your sources, Jake. Yes, yeah, I think your source is right, though, Jake. Broadly, it was a crappy year for IPOs, but it wasn't just a crappy year for IPOs in Australia. It was a crappy year for IPOs everywhere. And uh, this isn't just the lucky country being complacent. This is investors not being all that keen to take a punt on new companies coming to the market. And the other thing is. Companies don't need to come to the market like they once did. Private debt and private equity are keeping companies private for much longer. Some of them don't want to come to the ASX where you've got all this compliance and scrutiny. Uh, but what, so, about the, what about the idea that it's all mining and resources in Australia and no technology? Well, that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's but true. there's still lots of good tech companies here, but a lot of them just aren't listed. You know, Canva's a good example. Yeah. You know, it's, just, it's just done a bunch of share sales on private markets like that's a company I guess it will eventually need to come to public markets but it's going to stay private as long as it can so yeah um, will the the IPO 
cycle tends to go in windows. You know, is the window open? Are people optimistic and feeling good? Maybe we're coming to that. Yeah, well, so I think it's fair, fair to say that as with, as with real estate, um, you, don't, uh, you don't expect to get big gains quickly if you buy off the plan. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> well said. Bernie says, I hope you can help. I have read that there is a better investment value in companies which are involved in AI supporting the front of mind AI stocks like Google, NVIDIA, uh, Microsoft, etc. because the stock prices of the front of mind stocks are already very high. The problem is I don't know where to find these stocks and how to look for them. Can you suggest a way to discover these sorts of stocks and or do you have any stocks that you're aware that fits this broadly vague, broad and vague criteria? Oh, well. Um, <laughs> I think it's very difficult for a retail investor to both find these things and to to invest in them. So I would, if I were you, Bernie... I'd, I'd invest in either Loftus Peak, which is Alex Pollock's company, yes. uh, investment fund, yep. or Munro Partners. Yep. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Nick. Nick Griffin? Nick Griffin. Yep. Uh, and they spend their lives looking for them. Yeah. And researching them. Yep. And, you know, they're really good at it. Yep. So just give them, give them your money. Or, or, or perhaps if you're not ready to do that, you can go and read all their reports, and you'll get a sense of what they're thinking about and what. Sure, they're but they don't. They don't. Well, they do. They do talk about their stocks uh, after they've bought them. Yes, true. <laughs> as long, true, as, long true. as they're set. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, if you're quite happy to buy after they have, you can do it yourself. But yeah, look at Loftus Peak, Munro Partners. Yep. Good, good suggestion. And 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 just keep reading. I mean, yeah. Bernie's right. The winners and losers aren't. Today's winners and losers might not be tomorrow's. Yeah. Um, you know, Google's a really good example of that. I think you can see a, a, a view that where Alphabet, which is Google's parent company, does well out of parts of AI but poorly as as we start AIing yeah. rather than Googling stuff. Yeah, and a subscription to Market Watch and um, Barron's is probably not a bad investment either. Yeah. I yeah. mean, they, they, they have t- so many stories, so much, so much stuff on this. These, these yeah, things. true, true. John says, in regards to the stage three tax cuts, are you aware of any studies reviewing hours per work of em- per week worked of employees earning one hundred eighty thousand per annum, whom I expect in the main are salaried with hours worked uncapped, relative to lower paid employees who might in the main be capped under awards at thirty seven and a half hours per week? No, I'm not. No, I'm not either. I'm not sure what the point is. Is it that I think uh, uh, the the I think he's kind of make the, I think he's trying to make the point that uh, the people who are losing out from the stage three tax cuts, that is to say those earning more than 180,000, work hard and deserve it. Yeah. And that those who are um, winning in the new stage three tax cuts uh, aren't, uh, uh, have their hours capped and aren't working that hard. Yes. Yes. I think that's true. As someone who I don't think that's – I think you're missing the point, John. Someone who spends his life sitting behind a computer, I reckon there's a bunch of people who work really hard in jobs that where they only do 37 and a half hours a week. Of course. But but also, uh, it's not about how hard you work. It's about, no. It's, got, it's really not what it's about. No. Your turn. Lee says, I just wanted to point out that your and Stephen's tradie mate that buys, renos, holds, then sells to claim uh, pro- uh, uh, to claim a property 
windfall from their main residence and Zavon tax might actually be kidding committing tax avoidance. These types of transactions are actually considered to be on the revenue account if you're considered to be doing them in a business-like manner. You might be okay once or twice, but if there's a pattern, this would be considered a business model. Uh, just another reason to reduce or cap CGT benefits that may serve the rich that can afford to invest in these types of assets. Well, I think tax avoidance is legal. Tax evasion is illegal. Yes. If um, I, I think that's true. I, I think probably if you if you were uh, moving your family around every two years, and and did it like ten times over twenty years to uh, to make money capital gains tax free, then you probably would get picked up. I would say. Yep, I but, agree. But I'm not sure you would get picked up after three times yes um so it, it's a question of and based on what i how egregious your uh <laughs> based on what i know about the buying planning renovating cycle it's unlikely you can do it under two years and live in the place yeah so anyway but I, I i think it's a reasonable point yeah um jack says the government has indicated it would like super funds to invest in housing and renewable energy projects through schemes like the Housing Australia Future Fund. Can you see this generating lower returns if super funds are forced to invest in government schemes or is this just another option for diversification? I think what it is is another um, story in the Australian to allow them to get a bit upset about stuff that isn't really worth getting upset about because I don't think anyone's going to force super funds to do anything. They will not force and, – and the super funds will not do anything unless it generates – Appropriate returns for yeah. their members. So, they, so they're not allowed to. That, 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 there's a there's legislation that says they have to act in the best financial interests of their members. They can't go in to a scheme as much as the government would like them to, unless the returns are there. Of course. So, so uh, you know, the, this idea that the government or anyone's going to force super funds to do anything yeah. is rubbish. Yeah. And and it's just a straw man that everyone. That Jake, Jake does make a point that there, I think there are some politicians who see super as a big honeypot. Why don't you support? Yeah, yeah. This? they can flap their gums as much as they but, like. Uh, <laughs> it's got yeah, nothing they to can. do with reality. And, and, and the super funds are steadfast on this, sure. and so they should be. So good on them. I mean, it is. It's worth noting that. Uh, Greg Combe is now chairman of the Future Fund. Yes, true. And uh, Peter Costello, the outgoing chairman, has wagged his finger at P uh, Greg and said, you know, don't let the Future Fund be used for national sort In of projects. In the shot to clear column, yes. In yes. the shot to clear column, exactly. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, he's, I mean, Costello's right and Combe won't. That's, that's the end of it. Exactly. Like, uh, if you've ever met the chief investment officer of the Future Fund, he's not going to be press ganged into doing anything. They're, they're That's right. independent and Jim Chalmers said that'll be the case. Yeah, so so Peter Costello just got a nice run in the trying to clear column and good luck to him. Yeah, that's right. Important important stuff. <laughs> Exit interviews are important, um, Alan. <laughs> Will says, and then we had a few responses on this, just thought I would send some information through regarding how mortgage brokers are paid. Your comments regarding brokers' motivations to push larger loans onto clients due to financial incentives are incorrect. Brokers are paid upfront and trail commissions based on the loan size net of offset. Therefore, a $1 million loan with $300,000 in offsets results in a commission based on a $700,000 loan. Therefore, there's no incentive for a broker to encourage a larger loan size for personal gain. Well, I, I must say that doesn't surprise me at all. Of course, that's the case. I mean, what a fantastic wheeze that would be if you could shove... Million dollar loans down people's face, uh, you know, throats, 
and have a $900,000 offset, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. and get paid commission on a million dollars. Forget yes. it. No, it's not going to happen. It's um, the fifth anniversary on Sunday of the Hain Royal Commission's final report being Is it? released. Right. Yeah. There you go. And as someone who spent an awful lot of time inside the courtroom, it brings back both good and bad memories. But you'll remember. <laughs> you'll be waking up screaming in the middle of the oh, night. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Ken Hain, I don't know. I don't know if you know much about him, but he has this amazing ability. He sort of looked out on the um, courtroom with sort of Mona Lisa. You, you always thought he was looking at you and looking at you in disgust. So, anyway, <laughs> but one of the recommendations he made was that brokers' commissions should be paid by the customer, not the bank. And that was the the, the government, the mortgage brokers, managed to forestall that. And there was going to be a review, but it's never been implemented. So and probably never will. And never will be. Yeah. No, no, absolutely never will be. And, and there that's are right. reasons that that's okay because it encourages competition. But anyway. That, well, that was, that, was the, that was the reason it yeah. was knocked off. Yeah, that's right. Hamish says, is there any difference in buying Sigma healthcare shares now versus when Chemist Warehouse is officially listed on the ASX via Sigma later this year? Obviously, there's the issue of the deal falling through, but do you have any insight on the current valuation of Sigma? Is it now the market's value or, or Chemist Warehouses? Uh, so, is it now the market's value of, of Chemist Warehouse or is it more of a speculation price? I, I guess I'm wondering if it's the old thing where the market is waiting for the merger before fully valuing the stock and therefore there might be a bit of upside providing there are no hiccups before the merger. What do you reckon? Hamish is not the only one thinking about this. Fund managers everywhere are thinking about this. Do you go into Sigma stock now knowing that when the merger happens, you will be diluted to all the ends of the earth, (laughs) um, but you will have some stock? Or do you wait for the merger to happen and then Chemist Warehouse perhaps gets included in an index, the ASX 200 or 300, in which case you have to scramble to buy stock because you're competing against the passive funds. I don't have a I, I don't know if there's a good answer to this. Yeah, Hamish is right. If you go now, you're going without the full set of information about what Chemist Warehouse is all about and the financials and all that sort of thing. And you face the dilution. If you wait, maybe you'll be scrambling. Do, do we stuff. know do we know yet what the extent of dilution will be? No, we don't. We don't. We don't have those um, we don't have that level of information yet. So I think that's why you're probably not seeing the price react yet. People are trying to figure out what's the best way to get set if they want to get into this stock. So it's a, it's a bit of a waiting game and Hamish has identified the problem. Yeah. Fascinating though. Can't wait for those disclosure documents. It's going to be good fun. Ian says, bracket creep is always talked of as a bad thing, but is it always so? Running governments, housing, hospitals, education, subsidising fossil fuel grants cost money. As things like wages and other inputs get more expensive, it costs the government more to provide them. Many of our biggest problems are fueled by government spending cuts. Governments need increasing revenue to pay for more expensive stuff for more people. Does bracket creep need a better PR manager? Alan's uh, sold slavery to us today, so that's an <laughs> no, interesting well, point, isn't it? No, well, it, well yeah, I think the, the only bracket, bracket creep that's bad is that which is the amount of the uh, of inflation, right? Yes. So there's two sorts of there's two elements to bracket creep. There's the inflation, and then there's the promotion. Yep. If you you know individually, yep. if and and if you get a promotion and your pay goes from 150,000 to 200 or 100,000 to 150 
uh, you're supposed to pay more t- a higher rate of tax. That's the idea. It's a progressive tax system. It's a progressive tax system. The more you get paid, the more the higher uh, tax rate you pay. But uh, to the extent that it's infl- uh, it's the CPI, that should be that should be handed back. And I think that's acknowledged by everybody, including politicians. But the only thing is that they don't actually automatically adjust the tax scales no. for, for the CPI because what they want to do is hand it back through a press conference yes. and a press release like before Santa. the election. So that's where we're at. I mean, Malcolm Fraser had tax indexation or indexed the tax scales for a couple of years in the late 70s and then stopped it because he's, he, was, he realised he was being an idiot and he wasn't, he wasn't in a position to hand back bracket creep before the election anymore. So he stopped doing it. Yeah. So we're stuck with, with this. So uh, I reckon that's the case. I was struck the other day by um, somebody said, someone said to me, oh, you know, um, the, the 1985 tax summit, right, that Hawke and Keating yeah. held, yep. the big thing that came, one of the big things that came out of that was that they, they aligned the company tax rate with the top marginal tax rate. Yes. To, yep. to help prevent tax avoidance. And they aligned it at 49%, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, the company tax rate now is 30%. Yep. And the top marginal tax rate is 45%, uh, but it cuts in at 180000 which is well below where top marginal tax rates in other countries kick in. Yes. It, you know, in the US and Europe, the top marginal tax rate's kicking in at above 300000 Right. Right? So ours, sure, it's 45, but it kicks in fairly low. Now, um, you know, the... Um, there just is – we don't tax enough yeah, in well, Australia. Yeah. And that's the problem, you know. We're not really being able to pay for all the government services that we want, aged care, health care, NDIS. Um, so there is a case – there is a bit of a case to allow bracket creep to happen a bit, yeah. happen, yeah. which is what they're doing, actually. Yeah. I mean, and, those, and those stage three tax cuts do not hand back bracket creep. No, no, not at all. Don't go close. And, and as Ian says, it's sort of a softer way – than saying, well, I'm going to have to put your taxes up this year. You just let the bracket creep run for a while and sure. you hang on to more of the revenue. That's right. You don't make any announcements about it. You, you don't say we're putting up taxes. Yeah. Of course yeah. not. So maybe maybe bracket creep's got a good PR manager. They're just very quiet. Uh, we'll just do one more from David, which I thought was an interesting question. Yes. What's a good indicator that it's a time to sell a speculative share that has been consistently dropping? <laughs> I'm currently holding 5EA, BCB and POS. I don't know what they are. No, they sound like all of which seem to All of which seem to just continue to trend down. Every time, every time I think I should cut my losses and sell, I don't in case they do miraculously go back up only for them to slide further. What do you reckon? Well, it, I was thinking, I've been thinking about this since we got this question and it's that great behavioural psychology thing that we, loss aversion is a greater motivator than profit. <laughs> like David just does not want to take the loss on those things. He, he knows, he knows that they're going to keep dropping and they're, uh, and he probably should have sold some time ago, but he just doesn't want to take the loss. And I, I guess that's the, that's the challenge here. I mean... Oh, I, don't, I, I don't know what the answer is. When is a good time to sell? I mean, look, it's interesting. I, I interviewed uh, John Kelly, who's the CEO and founder of a company called Atomo Diagnostics okay. the other day. Yep. Now, he started this business in 2010. He listed it in 2017. Yep. Um, and what it is is a blood diagnosis oh, the, device. Yeah, the, He's got a little device that he sells yep. that pricks your finger and uh, it tells you whether you've got HIV Right. 
first thing. Yep. Second thing, it tells you whether you're pregnant. Okay. Okay. So he's got two, and basically the device is the same, and, and the, the chemistry on the strip inside it changes. Right. Right. So, yep. and so, and his thing is you can put um, any kind of strip in the thing, and he's, he's working on chemistry of other things. Tests, yep. Other okay. tests, right? Yeah. So he's going he can increase the number of tests, and and he's got the the HIV test is in Tesco supermarkets right. in the UK now, right? There you go. And he's, he's selling a few of them, and his, his dream is to have – you go into a chemist, and there'll be the, the, uh, the shelves the sh- – a shelf of Atomo – Strips. Um, devices. You know, there's the at- HIV, pregnancy, this yeah, one, right. that one. So there'll be half a dozen tests you can buy. This is his dream, right? Yeah. And, and he's listed the stock at 20 cents. Yes. It went to 50 cents. It stayed above 20 cents for ages. It's yep. now two cents. Right. So it's 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 come down a long way, right? <laughs> now, David's nodding. I can hear him. <laughs> he doesn't know. So David hasn't listed a Tomo, but, he's, he, but, he can but this is this is the thing, yeah. right? So, so if you're a Tomo shareholder, you came in at the float, or you bought them at fifty cents, and now two cents, you're going, oh Jesus, what do I do? Um, and and the answer is this is this is a company that could actually come good, you know, like. <laughs> He is starting to sell them. It's yeah. just, it's just that, as with a lot of these things, and it's not just, it's not just biotechs, but a lot of companies, startups take twenty years. You know, like true, true. It just takes ages, particularly in biotech, but but in in a, in a lot of other areas too. It just takes a long time to get anywhere. Yeah, you know. So, and the trouble is that. Investors are often impatient, you know. Yeah. They go, oh, bugger this, and they're out, right? And they, so they, <laughs> they sell the stock <laughs> sinks and the loyal fans start to lose hope and, um, and it actually all that's happening is that they're in the valley of death, <laughs> which is <laughs> – which <laughs> the valley of death is where you, you've got a good product – but you're running out of money. Right, yes. You know, and, and I've, I've invested in a few things that didn't make it through the valley of death. Right. So maybe that's the test for David. Do you think this thing gets through the valley of death? That's it. And, and that has to do with cash. Yep. So, so what you've got to do if you're, if you're investing in a spec stock, you've got to look at the cash flow report, which is a, a quarterly that comes out in the, in the ASX. You can find it on the ASX website. Read the quarterly. Um, look at how much cash they're burning. Uh, look at how much they've got left. Mm. Uh, see what the price is. Can they raise any more money? And if the answer is they haven't got much left, the price is too low for them to raise any money viably, then, well... It's time. It's t- or it might be time. <laughs> They're probably going to die. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a great question, David, and, um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, ho- hope's, hope's a, a fascinating thing, isn't it? Well, I've enjoyed today's Money Cafe. It's been great. We've covered some territory. We have. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'll be back next week with Stephen Main. Uh, any questions, send them to the Money Cafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until then, I'm Alan Collar, founder of Eureka Report, etc. And I'm James Thompson, senior Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. See you soon.